0: A friend of mine just caught back from New York City, and he ran the New York City Marathon, which is always crazy to me when I find out someone runs a marathon. I'm like, my first thought is always, I would never do that. Well, my thought is probably, I could never do that. And then I think about it, it's like, no, probably could. It would take a lot of work, a lot of training. I just don't know if I would do a marathon like that. It's crazy. I saw the, the route that they have to run in New York, and they, they start, like in Staten Island, and they go all over, and they go through the Bronx, they go through Queens, they go over the Brooklyn Bridge, they go down Manhattan, they go all throughout Central Park, and it's just like, how do you get 26 and a half miles or whatever in a very small area? They go all over the place. Um, and it was just crazy when he came back telling me I did it, it was great, I did have to go to the medical tent afterwards, but I finished, and I want to do it again. I'm like, you're crazy, right? I don't know why you want to do something like that. That kind of seems really hard. If you think what is the hardest thing, the very hardest thing that God calls us to, I think it might come in our text this morning. Kind of like running a marathon, it's one of those things that's unnatural, one of those things that doesn't feel like something we want to do naturally. But it's one of the most godlike things we can do. Comes in our text this morning, where Jesus ends talking about the law, and he says, "There's one thing that if you could do, that would really show." that you are like God in a lot of ways in your heart. And it's this, that you would love your enemies. That's like running a marathon. That takes training. It's unnatural. It's like, why would anybody do that? That doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Why would I want to care for the people that don't care for me? Why would I want to be nice to the people that aren't nice to me? Well, I think we're going to find the answers here in Matthew chapter five. So open it up one more time. Matthew chapter five, verse 43. One of the most famous sections in the Bible really One of the things that people can quote about Jesus, if you ask a person on the street, what kinds of things did Jesus say? Well, they'd probably say, oh, treat others the way you want to be treated, or love your enemies, and they're right about that. Those are two things that Jesus says. Now, he says a lot more than that, but this is something that Christians in particular should reacquaint themselves with, and maybe you need to think about this again, that Jesus calls you as a disciple to love the people that don't love you back, to, in fact, Care for the people that have perhaps hurt you. And he says that is like the pinnacle or the hardest thing of what it means to be a disciple. Look at verse 30, or, uh, 43. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the first time that Jesus is going to quote something that half of it doesn't come from the Bible and it's not biblical. This is a saying of the rabbis where in the Old Testament we are told, Love your neighbor. Remember, you might actually be able to finish the sentence. It wasn't just love your neighbor. It was love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? He leaves that part out here. But it seems like the rabbis repeated this phrase. Love your neighbor, right? the people close to you, the people that care for you, but look at your enemies with a kind of hatred. Don't love your enemies. Hate your enemies. The Bible doesn't tell us to hate our enemies, so this isn't something that the law said, but this is something that they kind of concluded and thought, well, if God wants us to care about the people that are close to us, he certainly doesn't want us to care about people who are far away from us, the people that are our enemies. verse 44, he says, but I say to you, this is Jesus' words to us, disciples, love your enemies, and more than that, pray for those who persecute you. Now, that might be a little easier to imagine. The people who were mistreating these disciples, he says, don't hate them. Don't exclude them. No, no, no. Pray for them and love them. That's really tough. That's a little bit like running a marathon. It's not natural. You don't naturally feel like loving your enemies, right? How many of you think, oh, the people that really hate me, those are the people. I I care so much about them. I want to love them. In my heart, I, I care for them. And in my actions, I'm always showing love to them, right? That's like a super hard, unnatural thing to do. But it's something that God does. Here's what it says next. In verse 45, do that, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Right? We saw that phrase earlier which said, when you do this, you're being like God. Right? When, when my son Jordan, when he looks like me, it's like, oh, that's John's son. It, look, it looks like John. Right? When we act like God, that's what it says here. Oh, well, then you're, you're being sons of God. You're, you're acting like his children. He says, what does God do? For he makes his son not his S-O-N son, his S-U-N son, the ball in the sky, right? He makes that rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God doesn't just love the people that love him back. God loves his enemies. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, you wanna be like God? Well, what does God do? God is loving towards the people that don't love him back. God gives his rain and his son and, and just the basic needs of everyday life. He gives that to people who hate him. And some of you this morning who you don't like God, you don't even maybe even want to be in church, you don't want to be, you know, experience any conviction, even you. Just know God loves you in the sense that he has given you everything you have. He makes the sun rise on you just like he makes the sun rise on the most godly Christian. You enjoy many of the same benefits because God has shown you love. He's loved his enemies. But verse 46, he says, if you, Christian, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Some of us, if I ask you, are you a loving person? You're like, of course, I love my family. I love my friends. I'm super nice to the people that are my close friends. But if I said, well, what about the people that aren't your close friends? What about the people just like a little bit outside your main orbit? How how kind are you to them? How much do you love the people? What about the people that maybe you would consider your enemy? How much do you love them? And if the immediate response is, oh, no, 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 I don't know. I don't love them. I don't interact with them. I don't want anything to do with them. Well, it says here, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Right, that was like if I said the drug dealers, right? Don't dr- drug dealers love their own kind too, right? They love their kids. They love their families, not all of them in every situation. But in general, it's natural for you to love the people that love you back, right? Even if you, it'd be weird. If you found out someone who was like your enemy, if you found out they like really looked up to you and they really liked you, you would all of a sudden change your tune. You say, ah, they're not so bad after all, right? Because they like me, right? And I like me. We got something in common. They got good taste, right? That's how we tend, tend to feel, correct? He's saying, that's natural. That's what we all do. But here's what's unnatural and godlike. and doesn't happen really unless God is involved, for you to love and care for the people that don't love you back. That's unique. Verse 47, he says, if you greet only your brothers, which back in those days, a greeting was more than just saying what's up. It was like a pronouncement of blessing you would say you know peace be to you shalom to you and that was like people didn't want to greet their enemies cuz they're like i don't want to say something nice to them because maybe god will be nice to them because of the blessing i said they're a little bit superstitious right maybe a little stitious maybe not superstitious um, they were a little stitious about that um, and they didn't want to say good things to people cuz they thought maybe god will be good to them so i'm just going to ignore them i'm not going to say anything nice to them he says if you greet You bless only the people who are your brothers. What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same, right? Don't the outsiders that don't know God, they all do that. Why? Because it's natural to love the people that love you. What's unnatural? To love the people that don't love you back. But that's what God does. Verse 48, he takes it even further, even more than just love. Look what he says next. He says, you, and remember, who's the you? Disciples of Christ, people who are his followers, people who have God as their father. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do you see that God is calling disciples to something pretty extreme here? And before you just go and immediately say, oh, well, nobody can be perfect, so that must not be what he means, right? We're going to explain what the word perfect means because it might not mean what you think. Right? Perfect in the New Testament, there's two words that really get used for perfect or holy. And this is one particular one, which is sometimes translated mature or complete or whole, right? These, this is a word which basically means that you're fully formed, that you're doing exactly what you should do. That's different than the word Now, hagios, which is the other word for holy in the Bible, this one means that you are doing the right thing, that you're a whole person, which that's a weird thing. Like, how can you be a half of a person? Well, the next chapter is all about people who are half people. Like, how are they half people? Because they're hypocrites. They act one way here, they act one way here. They're not wholehearted people. He says, no, no, you should be perfect. That's what God calls you to, to be honest to be having integrity, to not be acting one way with these people and then a whole different way with these people. Not to be acting one way at church and a whole different way at school. He calls you to be a whole person, consistent, same in both areas. You, therefore, are to be perfect. Guess what? Because God is perfect. He's whole. He's not duplicitous. He doesn't deceive and things like that. So what can we learn from this? I think three major things. The first one, point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to target your enemies with prayer prayer and love. Uh Uh-huh. That's not what you were expecting. Target your enemies, right? With what? Well, with prayer and with love. You might notice, why did he say prayer first and not love first? The text says love first. Pastor John, you're getting soft in your exegesis. No, I'm not because here's how the the process works for us. If you want to love somebody who's your enemy, where do you start? Like how, do you just tell yourself, oh, I'm just going to love them? Probably not how it starts. Here's how I suggest it start for you. Start by praying for the people that hurt you. That should just be step one for you. If you want to love your enemies, if you want to be like God in this, you probably are going to do best not by trying to love them first, although you might have opportunity to do that. It should start you and God, you praying for them, And pray more than just, God, I hope they get caught. God, I hope that you make their life terrible today. I don't think that's the kind of prayer that he's talking about, Right? Because he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I want you to imagine back in those days, if Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you, what kinds of things do you think Jesus would want his disciples to pray for his persecutors? Right. Well, one, you might pray for them to stop persecuting them. That's natural. Another thing you might pray for your persecutor is that they would start treating God's people better. Maybe even more than that, that God would save the person who's doing the persecuting, Right? that he changed their heart too? I think those are kind of helpful ways to think about how you should pray for the people that hurt you. Pray that they would stop hurting God's people. That's a good start. But then go further and ask God, God, can you please change their heart so that they love you? Some, some of us don't want to do that. If you remember the parable of the prodigal son, do you remember the older brother? He did not like the fact that the younger brother was forgiven because he was self-righteous. So for you, this should be a good check for you if you're a disciple of Christ, if you would be mad that your enemies became a Christian and got saved and did their baptism and everyone cheered for them, if you would get mad at that, right? Just remember that there is self-righteousness stuck in our hearts if we feel that way. We we can't feel that way. The, The law that Jesus quotes is from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we mentioned that last week. If you wrote down all the references I gave you, you wrote that down last week. Okay? Same idea as what we talked about last time, and not taking revenge, but he goes further. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, the law tells you you're not allowed to hate people who are your enemies. Listen, this is from Exodus 23, 4 and 5. God's word says, this is to the Israelites. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. So the idea is you can't be like, oh, that's my enemy stuff. Oh, <laughs> let's see what that, we'll see what happens with that. Oh, oh, you know. No, you're supposed to do the loving thing to your enemy, which is to take the ox or the donkey back to them. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, right? So you can imagine this animal's hurting. It's, you know, this burden's too big, but it's lying down under it. It can't get up you shall refrain from leaving him. So now you're obligated. That's interesting. That as a, just a normal Israelite, if you see somebody's animal, even if they hate you, you now that you saw the problem, you're obligated to go and help, right? Now that you've seen the problem, you gotta go do something about it. And you shall rescue it with him. Isn't that interesting? You go to the person that you hate and say, hey, your donkey, you know, he's outside, let me come help you. It's like, you know, a modern day example, you see your enemy and you know, they blew a tire and they're on the side of the road. Once you see your enemy there, what is he saying? Oh, don't just stop and drive by him and say, oh yeah, terrible for them. No, what are you obligated to do? Your enemy, a person that you don't like, you're obligated to stop the car, drive over and help them. That's what he's saying in modern terms, right? And again, I know that's not something you see every day. You don't see your enemy with car trouble that often, right? And you're like, oh, should I help them or not? But that's what he's calling us to. I mean, it might remind you of the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay? This is a reference you should write down, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, 25 to 37, the whole parable of Jesus starts with a guy coming up to Jesus and saying, what good thing do I need to do to go to heaven and get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? And he said, I, I, you love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's great. If you do that, you will live, right? If you really keep that, you'll live. And, it's, and Luke says, and desiring to justify himself, the man asked, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Like I might help my family, but does that mean I have to love like, who is my neighbor? Can, is there some people that don't count as my neighbor? And what does Jesus do? He tells a story about a Samaritan who is an outcast, someone who, that they would not have loved, but he does the loving. The Levite, right, the priest, who's the, you know, the, the ancient pastor, he goes by, he doesn't stop and help. All these rich people, they go by, they don't help. But this Samaritan, this guy who is an enemy, he helps. And Jesus asks at the end of that, which one of them loved his neighbor? as himself. And the lawyer didn't even want to say the word Samaritan, so he said, the one who helped, right? And Jesus said, go and do likewise, right? That's what it means to love your enemy, right? Love them as yourself. What would you want someone to do for you? You would be blown away if your enemy, if someone who didn't like you, you've hurt them, if they went out of their way to help you, you'd be blown away, right? Not just that you'd be impressed by them, but if they told you, I'm doing this because I love God, and God has shown me love, That would change your perspective, perhaps even on God. That's what he's calling us to do. That's why verse 45 to 47, he says, remember, you're loving your enemies because God has done this. He says, you'll naturally love the people that you love, that love you back. That's fine. And keep doing that. That's great. But Jesus is calling us to something more. Like we all have natural limits to our love, right? Like you see your friend who needs help and you immediately think, oh, they're my friend. Let me go help them. No one has to tell you. You just feel like it, right? You see other people that need help. You're like, oh, I'm glad they, they need help. You start to look down on them. You start to think, oh, yeah, they got themselves into this. They can get themselves out of this, right? That You start to think that way. What, what the text is trying to say is, okay, if God loves us in a certain way, and he loves even his enemies in a certain way, we need to go beyond our natural limits of love, too. That's point number two. I'd love for you to write that down. Love beyond your natural limits like God. God loves further than you would love. And we'd all say, yeah, well, that's because he's God. Well, that's true. He is God, and you're not, and I'm not. But if you're a Christian and a disciple, here's one thing that I know about you. You know how much God has shown you love, right? If you're a Christian, I know about you, that you have an understanding that God has shown you more love than you ever deserved or could ever ask for. If that's the case, well, then we need to be people Are willing to reflect that love to others. It says that he sends his son and his reign on even his enemies. Psalm one forty five says the same thing. It says the Lord upholds those who are falling and raises all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. God feeds everybody. It reminds me. There's an Old Testament story. The book of Hosea is a good one to know about. Hosea was told to marry a woman who was going to be unfaithful to him. And God said, you're going to marry her, and it's going to be a picture of how unfaithful my people are to me. And in chapter 2, he starts explaining how Israel was cheating on him with other gods. Hosea 2.8, God said, and she shall know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, and who lavished upon her silver and gold. So he's saying, It's like my people are going to realize at one point, it was me who gave them all these good things. And the story here, he tells the story, God tells the story, it's like a person, a lady on her honeymoon, after this husband saves up all this money, all this stuff, and gives her all these gifts on her honeymoon, she takes all of the money, all the stuff, and go cheats on the husband with every guy in the hotel. That's the story, basically. And God's word says, okay, I gave my people the grain, the wine, the oil. I lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for bail. Here's the idea. God gives everyone, everything they have, even the things that we use to sin against God, God gave you that. If you're a person here this morning who knows you're not a Christian and you don't want to be a Christian, just want to remind you, everything you have, every experience you have, every friend that you have, every fun thing that you get to do, God lets you do that. He gives that to you. And if you're using those things against him, that's a bad place to be. And God's word says, look at how good God is. And if you're a Christian, you know how patient God was with you. You know that he gave you all these good things and good experiences and maybe good family, maybe good siblings, maybe, maybe not, but he gave you all these things and you know that you didn't respond to God right away, right? I know that I didn't respond to God right away. I know I didn't repent the first opportunity that I had and that time period, if you're a Christian, you should look back and say, look how God was so loving to me. Can I love the enemies that I have? The people that I wouldn't naturally show affection for, the people I wouldn't naturally want to help out? Can I do a little bit more than I'm doing? I think every disciple, when you consider God's love for you, you start to think, wow, I don't even even come close to that. There's so much more I can do. We put natural limits up. We say, well, I don't have to help them, do I? I don't have to help them. Someone else can help them. Or I would help them, but they wronged me last time I tried to help. Or we say, I know that they hurt my friend, so I'm in a pact with my friend that we're never gonna be nice to them. We say stuff like, well, somebody else who's close to them, they can help, but not me. Those are all just limits we put up to say, nope, I'm not gonna gonna show love. I'm not gonna be kind. I'm not gonna help. Or even in our hearts, I don't even wanna feel nice thoughts or nice feelings towards them either. I want to dislike them. We do that even in our hearts. But that's not perfect. That's not godlike. That's not even whole. Right? That's hypocritical. If I go into church and say, "Yeah, I love God, and I know God loves me, and He loved me when I was His enemy," as it says in Romans 5, that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still His enemies, Christ died for us. Okay? We say that, we sing that, but then we don't want to love our enemies, or maybe even worse, we refuse to love our enemies. I think that's a little bit of hypocrisy. I think that's why Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect. as your heavenly father is perfect. Aspire for that kind of whole perfection. That's point number three. Practice whole heart and life righteousness. I think that's a good summary of what it means to be perfect. Whole heart and life righteousness. Your whole heart is in it, and your whole life is a part of this kind of righteousness. Jesus put it like this earlier in Matthew 5, 20. He says, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees, and their righteousness. What does that mean? They had a shallow, hypocritical level of righteousness, that they kept the rules, quote-unquote, but their heart wasn't in it, and they actually had all this deep underlying sin going on. But what does God call his disciples to do? Well, he he calls us to be perfect. It's translated mature elsewhere. Colossians 1.28 uh, says, Him we proclaim about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the word teleos, perfect. So that's talking about the job of like a pastor or a leader. Like we want everyone to hear and be warned and I want everyone here to be perfect in Christ. But if you heard me say the word perfect, you'd be like, ah, well, we're not gonna be perfect though, right? It's like, okay, but understand, this is a little different, right? I've told some people this. It's like, what's a perfect piece of paper? Is it a completely blank, perfect piece of paper or is it like, an amazing art piece, right? Like, well, that's a perfect in its own way. It's not the same as like a, a blank sheet of paper. In some ways, a blank sheet of paper is a perfect piece of paper in one sense. It's, it's pure, there's nothing on it. There's no mistakes. But also like the Mona Lisa, which is kind of an ugly painting, so I probably shouldn't use that. But, you know, a, a painting that you think is like amazing and beautiful, that's also a, a perfect painting, right? Well, but it's not the same. It's a little different kind of perfect. It's um, it's worn in. It's mature. It's it's full. It's whole. It's complete, right? Like I'm I'm wearing these these shoes today. I got these shoes like six years ago. They're like Clarks, the like boots. Um, When you get Clarks, they're they're terrible. I hate the first two months of wearing these shoes. Um, But these are now like seven or eight years old. You can actually almost see. I've almost worn through the bottom of them, so I need to get new ones. Uh, But the first, you know, even six months, the year, it was just not good. Um, And when does the shoe start to become perfect, right? I don't know, six months, a year, a year and a half. They're probably eight or nine years old now. I've worn them a long time. They're not perfect anymore. I've worn through them too much, but there came a point, just like those of you who play baseball, the glove is not perfect right when you get it, Right? Those of you who wear rainbow sandals, it's not perfect, right, when you get it, right? What do you have to do? You have to wear it in. It has to conform to your foot. It has to conform to my feet. It has to conform to your hand, right? There's things like that, Braces, they make your teeth perfect. It doesn't feel perfect at the time, but they straighten it all out. What does all that have in common? That's all teleos, perfect, mature, complete. That's what he's calling us to. Yeah, a good verse to write down about this, I think, just captures it before we, before we go today. Uh, Psalm 86, 11 through 12. Psalm 86, 11 through 12. Might not be verses you quote very often, but would love for you to write that down and just hear what the psalmist says about his desire to, to be in right relationship with God. He says to God, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's a good way of thinking about it. Our hearts want to go in different directions, right? And you know how that feels, right? You want to serve God, but you want to be selfish, right? You want to do the right thing, but sometimes you want to do the wrong thing, right? And your heart is like going in different directions. This prayer of Psalm 86, 11, to unite my heart to fear your name, says I want to be a whole person. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be saying one thing, doing another thing. I want to be a whole person here. And he says in the next verse, I give thanks to you, O God, O Lord, with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. So he says, at least right now, God, you've united my heart, and I want to live free with my whole heart. That's what he's getting at. Practice whole heart and life righteousness. Be perfect as I am perfect. I know that's a high call, but really, this like one thing, point number three, that one idea encapsulates what it means to grow as a Christian, to practice this kind of whole heart and life righteousness. It's hard, just like running a marathon, but it's good, and it's something that's more rewarding even than running a marathon. So let's pray that God would help us do that this week. God, we are thankful for this text. We know that we studied it uh, so much this fall, and we're excited to talk about this uh, short but very important section on Wednesday night at Small Groups. Please help us as we consider the ways that we need to push beyond our normal boundaries of love. Pray that we would be more like you, that we'd be more perfect as you are perfect That you would just keep conforming us uh, to the image of your son, as it says in Colossians 3. And that we would be uh, more righteous, not for our own sake, but for your glory and for the good of all your people that we're called to love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.